You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. In 1995, Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement, was published. The introduction provides an excellent history of the development of both the ideas of critical race theory and of the movement. The editors, who are each also contributing authors to some of the essays included in the book, acknowledge there is no set canonical doctrines or methodologies to which all critical race theorists subscribe. Where there is unity, it is around two interests, and I quote, The first interest is to understand how a regime of white supremacy and its subordination of people of color have been created and maintained in America, and in particular, to examine the relationship between that social structure and professed ideals such as the rule of law and equal protection. The second interest is a desire not merely to understand the vexed bond between law and racial power, but to change it. As a movement that began in academic law, now 27 years later, critical race theory, especially since June of last year, 2021, has made its way into national awareness because those on the political and Christian right have made it a significant target to attack. According to Gary Peller, a leading critical race theorist, as of June of last year, some 25 states have already enacted or are considering laws to ban teaching critical race theory in public schools. No doubt that number has grown since last June. In the June 21, 2021 edition of the Washington Post, Laura Meckler and Josh Dawsey wrote an article entitled, Republicans Spurred by an Unlikely Figure See Political Promise in Targeting Critical Race Theory. That unlikely figure is Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow Christopher Rufo. The article quotes Rufo as saying, that critical race theory has pervaded every institution in federal government and that it has become, in essence, the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy and is now being weaponized against the American people. The article goes on to say that Rufo considers critical race theory to pose a grave threat to the nation and that it amounts to a cult indoctrination. Richard Land, who formerly served as president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, and who was appointed by President George W. Bush to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, and who is now executive editor for Christian Post, in his July 23, 2021 article titled, Unmasking Critical Race Theory, makes reference to two articles by William Galston. Galston holds the Ezra K. Zilka Chair in Governance Studies and is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Land considers the Brookings Institution to be a liberal institution 
and Galston to be a liberal. Yet he commends Galston because, as Land says, Galston unmasked critical race theory as a mortal threat to the American constitutional and judicial system, and he does so in no uncertain terms. According to Land, Bill Galston has committed the unpardonable progressive sin. He has told the plain, unvarnished, democracy-destroying truth about critical race theory. Land goes on to add, the counterculture lynch mob will be out in force in full-throated rage. From Galston's July 13, 2021 Wall Street Journal article titled, How Adherents See Critical Race Theory, Land draws attention to Galston's conclusion, as Galston says, But one thing is clear. Because the Declaration of Independence, the founding document of the American liberal order, is a product of Enlightenment rationalism, a doctrine that rejects Enlightenment tacitly requires deconstructing the American order and rebuilding it on an entirely different foundation. Drawing from Galston's July 23, 2021 Wall Street Journal article titled A Deeper Look at Critical Race Theory, Land says, Galston concludes his expose and critique by quoting Ibram X. Kendi, the author of the bestseller, How to Be an Anti-Racist, where Kendi asserts that the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Land goes on to add, this would condemn America to a perpetually racist future in perpetuity. In addition to reading the introduction to critical race theory, the key writings, I have read the contributing essays by the four editors of the book. I have also read Land's article and Galston's two articles. Not surprisingly, I have found Galston's characterization of critical race theory to be inadequate and Rufo's, in Land's words, to be intentionally misleading, maliciously so. In order to help us understand better and more fully, and to provide some correction to the misinformation about critical race theory, Professor Kendall Thomas, who was one of the four editors of Critical Race Theory, the key writings, has graciously agreed to be my guest today. Professor Thomas is the Nash Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. He is a scholar of comparative constitutional law and human rights, whose teaching and research focus on critical race theory, legal philosophy, feminist legal theory, and law and sexuality. Professor Thomas is the co-founder and director of the Center for the Study of Law and Culture at Columbia Law School, where he leads interdisciplinary projects and programs that explore how the law operates as one of the central ways to creating meaning in society. He is also the founder of Amend the 13th, a movement to amend the U.S. Constitution to end forced prison labor. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for being with me today. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's begin with um, the uh, question um, 
if someone who doesn't know or is just learning about critical race theory, uh, how do you explain to them what this movement is? Critical race theory is an effort by legal scholars to tell a story about the history of the United States, in particular, the second half of life in the United States in the 20th century and the watershed transformations that took place in the United States starting uh, in 1954 with the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus the Board of Education, which was the Supreme Court case that definitively set in motion the dismantling of the legal infrastructure of Jim Crow segregation, the racial apartheid system that was established in the United States by law in the South after Reconstruction in the last third of the 19th century after the Civil War. And critical race theory tries to make sense of why it is that the civil rights revolution, the recognition of the equal constitutional rights of this country's African-American citizens promised more than it could give. Specifically, critical race theory focuses, as you might expect, on law, on court decisions, on legislation. So I've already mentioned Brown versus the Board of Education, but there were not only a number of Supreme Court decisions, there were also important laws passed by legislatures, Congress at the national level, but also state legislatures that expressly recognized the equal rights of people of color in this country and protected the right of people not to be discriminated against on the basis of race. And yet, in spite of this very elaborate and sophisticated body of law issued by courts and enacted by legislatures, we are still living in a country in which many of the inequalities that the civil rights revolution sought to address persist. If one looks at, in particular, the African-American community, by almost every index, levels of employment, illness, poverty, education, wealth, there is a racial disadvantage that African-Americans suffer. The houses of African-Americans are worth less 
than the comparable houses of white Americans because of the fact that we still in this country are divided by residential segregation. Banking laws, which are formally colorblind, are interpreted and applied in ways on the ground that have perpetuated second-class economic citizenship for African-Americans and not allowed African-Americans to acquire the wealth that many white Americans have. And most importantly, the continued persistence of racial disadvantage, not so much in the express or explicit language of judicial opinions and legislation, but that continued disadvantage also undermines white Americans and the ability of white Americans, particularly white Americans uh, who are working class to fully participate and to realize the promise of the American dream. So the most important thing I'd say about critical race theory is that although it attempts to explain the continuing disadvantage that people of color experience in this country, it is also very much uh, a theory that tries to show the connections between the disadvantage that people of color experience uh, and the marginalization in our economic life, in our political life, of the interests and concerns of poor and working class white Americans. Well, now that that's kind of contrary, I guess, to what you're hearing in the rhetoric uh, in that they see or that you hear them say from the political right and Christian right that critical race theory uh, makes uh, whites victims of racism. It is indeed. Uh, that mischaracterization, which I, I think in most instances is deliberate, uh, is intended to maintain the very successful politics of division and confusion that have led so many ordinary white Americans to identify with the interests of white elites. That strategy has a very, very long history and is rooted really in the period of Jim Crow segregation because the caste system that Jim Crow established oppressed all black people regardless of the class the economic class to which they belong, regardless of uh, geography. Um, and that was a kind of categorical exclusion of Black people as Black people from participation in the full live, uh, lives of their communities. But the psychology of Jim Crow 
uh, allowed white elites to limit the opportunities of poor and working class whites. Right? So uh, rather than have a public school that would educate black, brown, and white children, uh, rather than provide those opportunities, white elites, in many instances, limited uh, the educational uh, and economic opportunities of working class whites. Right? So uh, white elites made working class whites complicit uh, in the maintenance of racial hierarchy because poor and working class whites were led to believe that their advancement depended on their ability to distance and distinguish themselves from Black Americans as a group. Right? Uh, and these psychological benefits, together with economic and political self-interest, um, produced a kind of fiction right? uh, that um, blinded working class and poor whites to the fact that they, they shared interests with African-Americans that in fact outweighed uh, the racial alliances uh, that was part of the bar that were part of the bargain uh, through which white elites conscripted poor and working class whites to support uh, a Jim Crow system, which in fact uh, was about maintaining the class privilege, the economic privilege of wealthy whites. So the racial hierarchy of Jim Crow was in fact about maintaining uh, an economic caste system as much as uh, a system of hierarchy based on race. Now, that's a complicated story to tell. And one of the great tragedies of this moment is that the, the right wing has been able uh, to reduce this very complicated history to slogans uh, that they then pass off as truth. And I think one of the consequences of that is that it perpetuates the already staggering levels of illiteracy um, and the lack of knowledge uh, among American people about our past. There's a line in Brown versus the Board of Education in which Chief Justice Earl Warren, who authored the opinion, says that education is the foundation of good citizenship and that Jim Crow segregation in public schools limited the ability of black children to acquire the knowledge and skills that they needed, the levels of literacy that they needed to become good citizens. What the court didn't say in that opinion and should have said, uh, because we're living that reality now, is that racial hierarchy also undermines the ability of young white kids to acquire the skills and capabilities that they need to live in a complex, multiracial, diverse society uh, like America of 2022.
So the notion that the diagnosis of the problem of continuing racial inequality that critical race theory has made perpetuates the idea that whites are in an individual way, right? Racist is a weaponization of race to divide African-Americans and the white poor and working class Americans with whom they should be aligning themselves. Well, in the introduction of the book, um, it talks about that it, critical race theory is ultimately about human liberation. So how do you, how do you understand that? How do you define what that is? Well, for me, the, the idea of human liberation is intimately connected to the idea of justice, of human justice. And if we are a justice-seeking society, and we claim that we are, then liberation means the dismantling of the social structures and practices, the legal barriers to equal opportunity for all Americans to flourish. Human liberation would be about social justice and economic justice. Right? Human liberation would be about not putting Americans, regardless of their race, in a position where they have to choose between paying their rent and feeding their kids, between buying their prescription drugs and having electricity. There are far too many Americans of all races in this country today who are living in situations of permanent precarity. So for me, given the historic and continuing connections in this country between racial hierarchy and disadvantage and economic hierarchy and disadvantage, Human liberation, the goal of, of social justice movements that have human liberation at their heart has to connect, has to be to connect racial justice and economic justice. Uh, and one reason for the attack on critical race theory, quite frankly, David, is because there was in the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the emergence of a national grassroots community-based movement that was multiracial, multi-ethnic, intergenerational, and that in fact cut across class. So there were people coming out into the streets uh, from the South Bronx and Soho here in New York, where I live, 
around demands to acknowledge and to develop policies that were not, for example, about criminalizing young Black people, but about educating them, right? that uh, were not organized around the idea that safety and security in communities of color could be achieved only by policing those communities as opposed to providing those communities with good schools, offering opportunities to people in those communities to get jobs that would pay them a living wage, providing health care, child care, and security. So human liberation is about creating the conditions systemically for human flourishing. And the tragedy of the United States today, for me, is that we seem to have lost sight of the very idea of the common welfare, uh, that we are all connected in ways that ought to make us as individuals understand and live our lives in a way that is not just about our narrow individual self-interest, but is about the broader welfare of the communities in which we live. So that for me is the goal of a human justice movement that seeks liberation for all people by pursuing both social, economic, and racial justice, along with gender justice and respect for and protection of the right to be different. Well, as, as a part of this um, change, this liberation, uh, it involves uh, uh, changes in people's perception and understanding. Uh, it involves um, changes in behavior. Uh, but as you have stressed, it also involves changes in law. Um, what, what laws in particular uh, do you see as being most beneficial uh, to address, to move this forward? Well, I would, I would mention in particular at this moment in our history, two. The first would be education. I went to school in the 1960s in a little town in Northern California. And I was able to get a public school education from kindergarten through the 12th grade in this little town that equipped me to study and succeed at an Ivy League university. The public school system of California in the 1960s was second to none 
uh, the flagship universities, University of California, um, UCLA, uh, had not just national, but international reputations for excellence. And we are, and, and, and kids I went to school with in this little town in Northern California were able to go to Berkeley, were able to go to UCLA uh, and to get college degrees. Uh, if they didn't get college degrees, they were able, because of the variety of courses that were offered in the high school, they were able to make a living wage working in a trade or an industry. And we are living in America today in which public education is being starved. Uh, one, and one of the reasons that's happening is because in some parts of the country, the idea that every individual has a right to a basic education, indeed the very idea of a public school has become associated with black and brown Americans, right? And so uh, the, uh, the, the, the funding uh, for public education uh, has shrunken enormously. Uh, and one of the ways that that divestment from public education has been able to succeed is because of the smoke and mirror politics uh, that we are seeing around the culture wars over critical race theory. I believe it was in 2020, the Georgia State Board of Education passed a resolution condemning critical race theory and forbidding the teaching of critical race theory in K through 12 classrooms in that state. That same year, the Georgia State Legislature enacted a budget bill that cut the public education budget of the state of Georgia by almost $1 billion. I believe those cuts are going to be permanent. Those cuts are not just going to hurt uh, the black school children who live in inner city Atlanta, they're going to hurt the white school children who are in Maca, at Macon and in Augusta uh, and in Athens even. So um, I think education is one of the critical issues. Uh, there was a case brought a few years ago in Detroit against the governor of Michigan and the Michigan State Board of Education, which had actually um, taken over control of the Detroit public schools. And the young people and parents who brought that lawsuit in the complaint described the condition of their schools and their classrooms, of their books, of their classroom instruction, that to me were just shocking. The ceilings falling down, um, books that were 20 years out of date, 11th graders teaching 8th graders because there wasn't a competent certified teacher to teach in those schools. We 
need to recognize that every child in this country has the right to a basic education that would equip them with the literacy they need to succeed in our modern economy, to be part of uh, a vibrant, well-trained, educated workforce. Uh, and the levels of functional illiteracy in this country uh, have are just simply staggering, simply staggering. And the second area would be uh, voting rights and more broadly, our electoral system. We have for years now uh, seen the Republican Party principally create the specter of voter fraud and use this myth of voter fraud, which is almost non-existent, to disenfranchise millions of Americans. The Supreme Court itself has gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And those are body blows, David, to the very idea of democracy. The use of laws against early voting, mail-in ballot, Sunday voting, same-day registration are about undermining self-governance, right? uh, the self-governance that is at the very heart of the first three words of our Constitution, we the people. Right? Um, and it's being done <laughs> under the guise of keeping people of color from abusing the vote. And yet we know, right, just this week, Mark Meadows uh, was, it was revealed that Mark Meadows was registered to vote in two different places. Mark Meadows, who worked in the White House. Uh, and so the fraud that's being perpetrated about the abuse of the right to vote and of our electoral system is a way really to, um, to ban democracy, right? to ban democracy and the right of the people to govern themselves. Uh, and I think we are on a collision course at this moment in our history, which could very well uh, lead to the death of democracy as we have known it. So I would say education uh, and voting rights. There are countries in which voting is compulsory. You have to vote. Right? You have to exercise your civic responsibility. Voting is not just a right, but a responsibility in many places in uh, the world. Uh, we have used uh, our hyper-incarceration of Black and Brown Americans as a way to dilute and limit the political power of African Americans and Hispanic Latino Americans. 
There are countries where people who are in prison today are allowed to vote because we know that we want to reintegrate people uh, who are currently in prison into our society to make them feel that they're stakeholders in the American experiment. So I think that uh, there's enormous work uh, to be done around uh, the right to literacy and around the right to vote. And those are issues, educational justice and democratic justice that are linked in ways that I referred to earlier when I was talking about Brown. Uh, we all have a stake in those issues, uh, but the weaponization of race that's going on with the culture wars around critical race theory has really had the effect of blinding people to these urgent issues and the need to address them. In um, Professor Crenshaw's, one of her articles, uh, she talks about the, the progress that was made uh, in the mm -hmm. civil rights um, was the um, kind of reduction uh, in what she calls symbolic inequality, but that it mm -hmm. had the unintended consequence of, of establishing colorblindness as the judicial standard. And you've mentioned mm -hmm. that already. Uh, help mm -hmm. us understand that a little more, uh, how that has, how colorblindness has helped perpetuate and hide white supremacy. Well, um, <laughs> I know this isn't a law school classroom, but I think the argument that Professor Crenshaw is making that you refer to is an argument specifically about the ways in which there has been a kind of bait and switch that is baked into our legal system and the legal doctrines that the courts have developed in case law and their interpretation of civil rights laws, both statutory laws and constitutional law. And the idea here is uh, that the vision of equality that the courts in particular have been willing to sign on to is a vision that is about formal equal opportunity. So you remove the vestiges of Jim Crow, the legal vestiges of, of Jim Crow, the whites only, colored only signs, the, the, the separate drinking fountains, the separate bathrooms, uh, the exclusion of people of color from restaurants and hotels, right? uh, the explicit prohibition of uh, access to higher education. Right? So you, you take away any express mention of that in the law. So you have formal legal equality 
but you don't address all the other social and institutional sites uh, in which racial hierarchy is established and maintained. So um, you uh, don't address the fact that we assign children to schools in the United States based largely on where they live. And indeed, we determine school budgets uh, based on the income and wealth of the people, uh, specifically the, the taxes that they pay uh, in a particular area. Right? Now, we know uh, that the, white, the wealth of most white Americans was accrued as a consequence of policies, the Homestead Act, the GI Bill, et cetera, uh, that allowed white people disproportionately to take advantage of those opportunities. It was a period uh, that my colleague Ira Katz-Nelson at Columbia University calls um, when affirmative action was white because law and policy was used in a way that allowed white people to acquire wealth that black and brown people were not able to acquire. And so uh, these background conditions of what the Supreme Court has called societal discrimination have been deemed to be off the table. Uh, the court has expressly said in several opinions that societal discrimination, institutional racism, as we call it, cannot be addressed by law. And so the legal system accepts a baseline of inequality in which a system that was rigged is allowed to continue so long as you now have a formal prohibition on racial discrimination. And so um, the, the point that Professor Crenshaw is making is that that formal equality of opportunity did nothing to address the substantive inequalities that continue to perpetuate racial advantage for some and racial disadvantage for others. Now, where I part company with Professor Crenshaw is around the idea that the gains of the civil rights movement were purely symbolic. First of all, I'll say that symbols matter. Right? The culture of the country matters. I grew up at a time in this country in which I rarely, if ever, particularly in my early years, saw a black person on television. Right? Uh, people of my age who were the children of the civil rights uh, revolution remember those evenings when a black person would, uh, the face of a black person would be shown on television and we scream to everyone in the house, come to the living room, come to the living room. Right? There's there's a, there's a Negro, that was a word we used in, there's a Negro on television. Right? 
Uh, I remember uh, I was born in 1957, which was the year uh, of the brilliant but short-lived Nat King Cole show. Nat King Cole could not find companies that would sponsor his show because television stations in the South refused to show the, the Nat King Cole show uh, to uh, their viewers. So the cultural changes in particular uh, that I have seen in the United States in my lifetime have been real, uh, have been important, uh, and have changed the way I think all Americans see one another in our culture, in the realm of culture. But it is also true that the civil rights revolution helped change the quality of life for many African-Americans. Uh, it opened up opportunities for access to education, for access to jobs and careers, uh, for access to um, living conditions, et cetera, that had been foreclosed to all uh, Americans of African descent and uh, more generally uh, to people of color. Uh, I would say that the Immigration Act of 1965 had the same important consequential effect and was uh, legislation at the national level that advanced the principle of anti-discrimination and equal democratic citizenship uh, and which repudiated uh, a legal regime that was established in 1790 that denied the right of people to become American citizens if they weren't white. Right? So in my view, uh, those legal reforms ought not be minimized. But as I said earlier, the civil rights revolution promised more than it could give because in using the language of equal opportunity in a context in which people were not competing on a level playing field, these laws perpetuated uh, the the lie uh, that um, the mere passage of a law would in fact grant not just formal, but substantive, real opportunity. Uh, and for me, um, that is a tragedy of the civil rights movement. On the other hand, the civil rights movement did, I think, as my late colleague Lonnie Guineer has written, educate the country about the changing meaning of the United States Constitution. And it allowed Black people uh, to claim the U.S. Constitution as our Constitution, despite the tragic role uh, that race had played in, um, in, in early uh, America. 
uh, and in the interpretation of uh, our Constitution. So I want to honor uh, the significance of uh, the symbolic equality and say that that was necessary, but symbolic equality is not enough. Symbolic equality is not enough. And as I said at the outset, uh, we have seen uh, that notwithstanding legal reforms, the conditions in which poor and working class people of color in particular are expected to, are born into and are expected to live out their lives continue to be marked by inequality. And that is a consequence of the ways in which our constitution, and in many uh, uh, cases, uh, our statutes have been interpreted by the courts. So the courts have so narrowed the idea of what constitutes unlawful discrimination that the bulk of the disadvantage in the workplace, for example, uh, that people of color experience is not even recognized as discrimination. The court has said, uh, not just respect, with respect to race and racial equality, but with respect to sex and sex equality, that it's not enough to show that a policy, a colorblind policy, has been adopted even though the people adopting the policy know that it's going to disadvantage women, that it's going to disadvantage people of color. You have to show that the law was adopted or the policy was adopted for the purpose of disadvantaging people of color, that it was intentional, purposeful, deliberate, et cetera. Uh, and uh, aside from the difficulties of actually proving that in a lawsuit, because the evidence uh, is usually such that it's hard to get, and you rarely, if ever, get a smoking gun uh, where there's you know, a tape recording or a memo or an email, right? Uh, there's a lot of, I like to call it low visibility disadvantage and discrimination, uh, which the law is blind to. So, I mean, in fact, colorblindness is a, is a misnomer right? um, because it's, it's, um, it's not so much about blindness, but about willful ignorance of something that everybody knows. Uh, namely, uh, that the inequalities that continue to scar American life and to harm us all as a country um, cannot be addressed by you know, these crabbed, narrow understandings of, of our law. You know, um, Martin Luther King famously said many years ago that the law may not be able to make a man love me, but at least it can keep him from lynching me. Uh, and in a legal system in which prosecutors have been unwilling uh, to seek indictments, 
of not just police officers, but ordinary citizens who beat or kill black and brown citizens, right? where courts are in effect granting the right to kill right? to police officers and even to ordinary citizens under laws like the stand your ground statutes that have been passed in many states. What we are seeing uh, is the return really in a way that becomes harder and harder to deny with every death of a young black person or a young Latino person at the hands of a police officer or another private citizen, right? And namely that the law is allowing uh, Americans, some Americans to effectively lynch other Americans. Uh, but that gets me to um, another central point that I wanna make, which I think is really important for your audience. I think the, the problem of racial justice is principally about political justice, about democratic justice. And that's why I've been talking about it in those terms. But I also think that the problem of racial injustice and the road to racial justice is not going to be addressed in the forum of the courts or in the arena of politics. It is finally a question of our willingness to respect difference but to step out of that difference and make human connections. So uh, when I was a teenager, and this was after the passage of the civil rights laws and the landmark decisions of the federal courts, in the small town in which I lived, my grandfather, who was a Baptist preacher in a church that had an all-Black congregation, became a community leader who built bridges to the white churches in our communities. And I remember very vividly the first time that our congregation was invited to worship with a white congregation, which was part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Our church was part of the National Baptist Convention, which of course is the largest um, organization of black churches in the country. But as I said, I was a teenager, so that wasn't until the 1970s. Now, 
the opportunities that the simple act of singing the hymns that all of us had sung every Sunday, but in our segregated churches, right? of reading the same scriptures that the white church and the black church had read uh, every Sunday, that my grandfather had preached about, uh, and that the pastor of Grace Baptist Church had preached about. That established a human connection. And it was uh, not just a bridge to liberation, but it was a practice of uh, of liberation because we were building what Dr. King called a beloved community. Right? Uh, and the great theologian Paul Tillich wrote in one of his books that love makes justice just. Right? So what I want to say is that the problem we face today is, I believe, a kind of soul sickness in which we have let our fear and we have let our resentments and we have let the weaponization of what, after all, are very small differences. Right? Uh, if you prick a person of color, to quote Shakespeare, they bleed in the very same way that a white person does. Regardless of the color of your skin, your blood's red. Uh, and race is not just a social construction, it's a political construction. We're seeing that in these culture wars. Uh, critical race theory subscribes to the view that race doesn't really have any basis in biology. Right? Uh, and in this regard, Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, the Supreme Court justice was right when he said, there's only one race, the human race. Right? Racism is about the social and political construction of social difference and social hierarchy. Uh, and so the challenge, as I see it, is on the one hand, uh, to respect that difference and honor difference in a way that does not stigmatize race and weaponize race as a political tool for creating and justifying inequity, and inequality. Right? Uh, but part of that work, and this is why I mentioned uh, and insisted that symbols matter because symbols are cultural. Right? Uh, part of that work is cultural work, which has precisely to do uh, with educating Americans and raising the level of literacy of all Americans about what it means to be American. Right? Uh, and consequently, one of, to me, the saddest things about the attack uh, on critical race theory is the creation of this misperception that critical race theory is animated by hatred, right? And that it seeks to 
divide us and to create animus uh, among people on the basis of how they look. Nothing could be further from the truth. For me, critical race theory is calling for a revolution in American values, a revolution that is reflected in our law and policy, but that is guided by love, that is guided by love, a love for the idea uh, and for the nobility of the vision of democracy. And with every book that's banned or burned as the pastor in Tennessee did with his congregation. Every book that is banned or burned, we Americans collectively are creating a culture of illiteracy and of willful miseducation and willful ignorance that is creating not just distance among us, but distance between us and the vision, however flawed, of the founders, Uh, who imagined a culture in which we, the people of the United States, would commit ourselves, not just on paper, but in our everyday practices to live up to the promise of our constitution, to establish justice, to promote the general welfare and to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and for our posterity. And I fear that there are too many Americans, particularly Americans in power, who have decided that given a choice between maintaining their power and privilege and protecting our democracy, they're willing to sacrifice democracy. And that is at the end of the day what is at stake in these culture wars around critical race theory? The question is, are we willing in this country today, in 2022, to fight for democracy and to recommit ourselves to the noblest parts of the American idea, uh, which are rooted in the dignity of all people Uh, and not just the right, but the ability of everyone to seek and secure a share of the American dream.
So the conversations I think we need to be having in our communities are conversations that have nothing to do with politicians, that have nothing to do with lawyers and judges, and which for that matter have nothing to do with our pastors or rabbis or imams. What we are being called to do at this moment in the history of our democratic republic is to recognize and commit ourselves to the idea of citizenship right? and civic community in which regardless of our race, regardless of our sex, regardless of our sexual orientation, regardless of our gender identity, regardless of our socioeconomic class, regardless of our le level of education, regardless of uh, our religious belief or lack thereof, we are committed to the idea of democratic citizenship and uh, of an egalitarian society in which everyone has not only the right, but the responsibility to participate in and to be represented in the decisions that are not just about, you know, schools or what you get paid in the workplace or where you live, but about what we want the meaning of our democracy and the meaning of America to be. And we're at a moment in which we talk about families and parents. Uh, we talk about religious denominations. We talk about race and ethnicity, but our conversation about citizenship has become impoverished, right? And that just plays into the hands of elites uh, who don't want democracy, who want power, and are willing to manipulate the American people uh, in order to have us accept uh, a process of de-democratization right? uh, in which you know, our birthright, self-governance, civic participation is being taken from us. And critical race theory uh, is sounding the alarm so that Americans will see how one of the principal ways in which that is happening is uh, by the use, is through the use of race to divide Americans and to promote uh, fake conflicts uh, that have nothing to do uh, with the real problems that we face uh, as a country. Well, our time is up, but I am deeply grateful uh, for your wisdom, uh, for your insights. Uh, you have helped us understand much more fully uh, and help give us some guidance in where to go from here and what folks like me uh, can do. So thank you. Thank you very much, David. It's been a real honor 
to be in conversation with you and to have an opportunity to be in conversation with your audience. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm very, very, very grateful and, and I'm eager for them uh, to hear. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak.